2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. Our news organization is working a hybrid schedule, so some days I broadcast from Hartford and other days from home. At home, I have an audience, my two rescue dogs, Wally and Luna, and they have yet to interrupt a live show. Such good doggies. What about you? Are your pets keeping you company at work? Today, Where We Live, we talk about Americans and their connection, or should I say, obsession with their pets. Author Mark Cushing writes in his new book, Pet Nation, there are nearly 200 million cats and dogs in the U.S. living in 6 out of 10 households, and the number of pets began to skyrocket after 1995. Coming up, we find out why. And we learn how humans have changed thanks to pets. We also want to hear from you. Did you adopt a pandemic puppy? What pets rule your home where you live? Mark Cushing joins us on Zoom. Again, he's author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. He's also founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group. Mark, welcome to the show.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, before we jump into your book, any pets in your life that you want us to tell us about?
3: Well, we my wife Natalie Langley and I have uh, a fantastic little uh, Papillon puppy named Louie who lives to chase desert lizards. I live <laughs> in Arizona and that is his life's mission. Fortunately for the desert community or the lizard community, he succeeds rarely, <laughs> but has a good time of it. And then we have two Beagle Kittens, if you don't know that breed, Google it and you'll be entertained to be sure they're Olympic athletes masquerading as uh, as cats. So uh, we lost a couple of cats this year. So I'll mention Oscar and Chloe. I miss you both, but uh, we have a good time of it.
2: I Thanks for asking. Thank you for sharing. I understand that you're a lawyer whose world has intersected now with pets in American society. So let's talk a little bit about the history because you know, it wasn't that long ago where animals, dogs, cats, whatever animal were kept outside. They were seen as uh, you know workers on a farm. And, and now what changed is that they're part of our indoor living.
3: Well, we we had we're in the third phase of what I call the cat and dog era going way back. Of course, Forever, uh, dogs were hunters, helpers, and they were farm laborers. And cats, uh, as you know, on the East Coast, came to the US on ships as sanitation workers. Their job was to get rid of the mice and rats and might eat the food in the ship. They did that, of course, for cities in the East Coast and the Midwest for for decades. And then cats were summarily fired when public health arrived on the scene, and they were euthanized uh, millions a year. I don't think anybody has a comeback story like cats. But really the phase of the generation before baby boomers, uh, which would be my parents' generation, um, that was that second phase. And and dogs and cats were around. There were were certainly families in every community that uh, obsessed, to use your word, about Mm cats and dogs the way we do now, but most didn't. And I, I call that period, cats were sort of, and dogs, accessories. It was, a, they were a uh, they weren't They weren't primary. They lived mainly outside, came in, went back outside. Um, and I'm not saying it was bad or good, but it wasn't anything like what we have now. And it was in the childhood of baby boomers, which we could talk about when the transformation kicked off and then hit high gear uh to where we are now
2: you mentioned baby boomers do we have lassie to thank for that
3: well that's where i'm gonna go and (laughs) i I have to tell your listeners i I was amazed in writing the book to learn this the author that created lassie was a friend of charles dickens Mm -hmm. so you know charles dickens wasn't a, a late 20th century figure he's he's back in the 1800s and it's it's quite remarkable to, to think of that character going back that far in time. But boomers remember on Sunday nights, you stopped what you're doing you, and you sat on the family couch to the floor and you watched this amazing collie Lassie and it embodied everything that we now know about dogs as pets, but I don't think people saw it the way they saw Lassie courageous, brave, funny, happy, loyal, you know, whatever Timmy needed, in some cases, just a hug or to be sleeping next to him. It didn't matter. This was an amazing, real dog. Um, followed by Rin Tin Tin and Old Yeller. And then suddenly, cartoon dogs showed up. This actually played a major role in the whole transformation of our culture with pets because we had examples of cats and dogs that, uh, cartoon or otherwise, that we really couldn't picture but we wanted and I think parent after parent of baby boomers gave into the mom and dad can we have a pet can we get a puppy Uh, and it was uh, transformational leading to to me the favorite media event that I think symbolized this change best of anything what was that Subaru and Nissan which meant their CEOs agreed to this put on advertising campaigns where all you saw was a car going down a California coastal highway and a retriever or a dog like a retriever in the passenger seat, hair flowing in the wind, smiling, and it didn't tell you anything about the car. And I can imagine the CEOs looking at the ad before it went on the air saying, wait a second, you know, when are you going to finish this and tell us what they're buying? And And their point was, no, 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 no this is all about that dog. And we just want the person to see the dog and connect it to our brand. And they're going to get a good feeling and you watch what happens. And their sales proved it. And I mean, who could have thought about that? And, and it began to lead to this movement of dogs and cats inside all the way into sleeping. You know, 75% are estimated to sleep on top of the bed of their pet parent. Um, that certainly wasn't the case in my childhood. My, my mom and dad would have would not have tolerated that for a minute. And then figuratively people decided, you know, I'm just going to take my dog out the front door into America. And they are everywhere now. And you're in Connecticut. So I'm sure you're in Manhattan from time to time. Yeah. And, and you cannot walk on a, a a beautiful big boulevard in Manhattan and not see dogs everywhere. And, and dogs don't get out of the way for you. You know, people get out of the way for the dogs and, We've democratized dogs, particularly in the public space, taking them places we never imagined. Can you imagine, I couldn't imagine in a childhood a dog being allowed in a hospital. Now, dogs are part of the therapy, animal assisted therapy dogs are everywhere. It's hard to find a hospital that doesn't have one. So they're part of the treatment plan. That's a fairly significant change. Um, Hotels like the Kempton group, uh, they're my favorite because many of their hotels have special floors for non-pet parents and non-pet owners. It just wouldn't have been thought of 25 years ago. Uh, Workplaces, of course, we discuss them a lot now in the context of returning to work after COVID, if there ever is after COVID. (laughs) And what, again, was an oddity 20 years ago is now not only common, but it's the subject of serious decision-making. In executive quarters around the country, if we're going to try to get our workers back into the office, we probably are going to let them bring their pet at least one day a week, but maybe every day. And the research backs it up as a really smart decision. Uh, the study that's that I, I really was astounded by—I remember sitting in a conference room seeing the presentation by Carrie O'Hara, the PhD who did the, PhD who did the study for uh, nationwide pet insurance. 1500 employees, 1,000 didn't own, or 1,000 did have pets, and 500 didn't, in companies of 100 or more employees across the country. Almost no difference between pet owners and non pet owners. They dramatically like their company better, would stay longer, like their boss more, and certainly like their fellow employees more if it was pet friendly.
2: Well, Mark, I hope our our boss is listening right now to where we live (laughs) as my guest joins us on Zoom. Mark Cushing, founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group, author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. We definitely want to hear from you if you're a pet owner. Did you adopt a cat or dog during the pandemic? A little bit later, Mark, I want to get into some of the non-traditional pets that people have. You know, Mark, you mentioned how, you know, watching dogs like Lassie and Rin Tin Tin on television, you know, it was something that, you know, brought uh, animals and changed the way we thought about pets. But now we've got social media. And in your book, you write that the rise of pet nation really coincides with the growth of the digital world. Can you talk about that?
3: Yes, it was... um you know I, traditional media may have kicked it off but but it got over the finish line with social media because you have people and there's lots of studies about this somewhat isolated you know this we see the scene all the time of six people at a dinner table and each they're just looking at their smartphone texting whomever maybe the person across the table i data it but uh, um, in any event there's a certain isolation there but everybody turned into a movie producer or, or a film director starring their pet. And I remember at first you saw more babies on social media, but quickly dogs and cats and a few other pets, but mainly dogs and cats uh, stole their thunder and became the stars of daily shows. And you had people you know, living in San Diego with the same breed or same type of dog as somebody in Portland, Maine. And now they're friends. Now they're part of some group that connects and can't wait to see the next episode of whatever that dog did that day or the next day. And it became uh, addictive to some extent, but certainly omnipresent. And, and it created a feature, or it didn't create it, highlighted a feature of pets. That that is the reason I called the book "Pet Nation," and the term "nation" in that context is a sporting term. People that are fans of the Yankees, and I'm not one of them. Sorry, I'm a Dodgers fan. <laughs> but there's this term "Yankee Nation," or in college, you know, whatever the college might be. Uh, Raider Nation or Tiger Nation, so forth. And what it means is that two people wearing the colors of a school could be in a Starbucks line, never would have met, and they start talking, and they don't ask each other, how much do you make and what kind of car do you drive and where'd you you go to school and what's your job? They just discuss their team, and, and it's a commonizing element. Well, that's what pets do. And I use Manhattan as an example, but you could have a billionaire walking her dog And somebody walking in the opposite direction with her dog, they would never have talked. They would have been probably polite and not even looked each other in the eye without the pets there. But now they stop for 15, 20 minutes and have a conversation. And and that common element is, is, is a driving factor. And you tie that to social media. And pets become a unifying force in a country that could probably use it.
2: Again, you're hearing Mark Cushing here on Where We Live, author of Pet Nation. We've heard from some of our listeners on Twitter. Allie says Caddy is listening right now. Uh, Helder says Nick Miller, so it's a cat, was a pandemic adoption and has made himself right at home. And <laughs> Scott shared that dog Oswald is still waking up. Uh, Katie Pellico is uh, screening our calls today, and Sunny, her marvelous little boy, a beautiful dog. You can go to at where we live to see him also at the call screening monitor. Again, you can join us 888 720 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live as we talk about uh, Pet Nation. So Mark, you were mentioning how pets have um, really are a social glue. Uh, when I think about uh, how people use Instagram, some of their dogs have their own accounts or cats.
3: <laughs> they do. It's a... Uh... Still, somewhat of a mystery to me. But my my wife, who uh, very serious scientist and shares anatomy at Mayo Clinic's medical school. But uh, when Oscar, our our cat that just passed away from cancer, uh, he had quite an Instagram following, and uh, I loved it. I mean, he you know. In fact, you begin to feel like he's aware of it, and, and was quite proud of it. Uh, I doubt he was, but uh, no, that's a huge issue. And the thing about the social side of pets. THERE WERE STUDIES DONE IN PERTH ON THE WESTERN EDGE OF AUSTRALIA, a CITY THAT'S QUITE A BIT LIKE SAN DIEGO. IN PORTLAND, OREGON, NASHVILLE, TENNESSEE, AND SAN DIEGO, STUDIES WERE TRYING TO DETERMINE WHAT FACTOR PROVIDES THE MOST GLUE. I LOVE THAT TERM THAT YOU USE, SOCIAL GLUE, IN A COMMUNITY OR NEIGHBORHOOD. WHAT MAKES THE NEIGHBORHOOD WORK? LESS FEAR, MORE SAFETY, LESS ISOLATION, FEWER STRANGERS, MORE COMMONALITY. AND IT WAS A, it was a BLIND TEST. IT WASN'T TRYING TO PROVE THE POINT was just trying to find out, was it churches, was it schools, sports, music, civic culture, elections? Probably not. And of course, what won? Pets. In every case, pets were the primary factor that made a community work. And that term that social scientists use is a social capital of pets. Very powerful. So you have pets that make people feel better because When you're with pets, your oxytocin level goes up, which is happiness and joy and relaxation. And your cortisol level goes down, which is anxiety and nervousness or stress. So people are better with pets and communities are better with pets. And that's really the principle of pet nation. And that's why I always tell people we need more pets. We're not done growing the pet population in this country. Um, And it's hard to, to me, it's hard to make a compelling case against it. Uh, other than people shouldn't be forced, to force to have a pet.
2: Uh, David tweeted that he got a pandemic pup actually called Lucy. Beautiful dog, uh, David. Again, you can share your photos with us at where we live. I'm so glad that you brought up science and what um, studies have shown um, about um, how animals help humans, even uh, disease detection, whether it's cancer or even uh, COVID,
3: Mark. Yes, it's a... Uh, it's- Purdue University's College of Veterinary Medicine, which is one of the top schools in the country, um, has over 32,000 entries now related to the human-animal bond and research, uh, proving this fact that um, dogs can detect conditions. Adolescents going into cardiovascular surgery need fewer and lower dosages of drugs post-surgery if they're with their dog before the surgery, there's a calmness that, that their, their fear and their anxiety is not elevated. We know with autism, it, pets don't cure autism, of course, but they improve the family dynamic, the, the communicate, ability to communicate if both a cat or a dog, or, or either a cat or a dog, or, or in the presence of the family with, with the autistic family member, PTSD veterans recovery enhanced significantly with dogs involved in that and I I know your veterinarian guest I'm sure has many examples from her practice Um, and and doctors have said in studies that they would have no hesitancy prescribing a pet for for a person and and in other words there's it's not just fun to have pets it can improve lives dramatically seniors eat with more regularity in nursing homes that they observe aquariums and they watch how the fish eat regularly. And that's the problem in some nursing homes is that people don't eat enough to maintain their strength and their energy. And it's example after example, we could, we could take an entire show, just listening the ways pets have been shown to, to be medicine, if you will, or therapy, not just great companions.
2: Mark Cushing is author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. We want to hear from you as we continue talking. We'll also talk to a Connecticut veterinarian. We've heard about this uh, pandemic pet boom, all these people uh, adopting uh, pets. And uh, sometimes that means it can be hard uh, to book an appointment at your veterinarian. We'd love to hear from you if you're getting uh, that experience as well. This is Where We Live, back after a short break
1: love my dog as much as i love you but you may think my dog will always come through. all he asks from me is the food to give him strength all he ever needs is love and that he knows he'll
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall If you own a pet, you know, they're like our babies. Author Mark Cushing says in his book, Pet Nation, it was only in the last 30 years or so that cats and dogs' statuses in America rose to rival the status of human children. If you're rolling your eyes, let's dig into this. Do you talk to your dog or cat like they're human children? Where do your pets sleep? how much do you spend on them? Uh, Mark Cushing again is with us on Zoom. He's also founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group. And listeners can join as well. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I liked reading in your book, Mark, uh, again, Pet Nation about, um, you mentioned how millennial couples uh, will tend uh, to show their sign of a long-term commitment by adopting a pet together. And so I wonder if you could talk about that.
3: Yeah, the the engine driving the the pet economy and just the presence of pets in the country right now are truly millennials. Millennials and Gen Zs right behind them um, own 60% of the pets in in this country. And they were the children or grandchildren of baby boomers. And they have distinct patterns. And, And I know you have a veterinarian guest and you know, one of the challenges is millennials have made it clear they want human scale and human quality healthcare for their pet, and they'll pay for it. And that's really placed a lot of pressure on clinics uh, who don't have enough staff and don't have enough veterinarians or, or vet nurses to, to, to keep up with it. But millennials got out of college or, or left home uh, from high school and whatever additional training they had. And they got about the business of having a pet pretty quickly. And during the pandemic, we didn't just see people or couples get a puppy or a kitten for the first time, but many millennials got a second dog or a second cat or their first cat along with the dog they have. And that was as much the the growth or expansion of pets as anything. And it's not so much training for having a children, you know, having a child. I, I'm not enough of a psychologist to be able to to prove that or claim that. But clearly people found great joy and learned how to be a, a partnership. No question about that, if you have a pet, because it's it's not a full-time job, but it but it takes it can take more than one person sometimes to make the whole thing work. And millennials have done that. And they're the ones that didn't want to say goodbye to their dog or cat, particularly their dog in the morning when they go to work. And, and so many of the changes we're seeing are millennials. And as I told an audience last week, millennials are in their late 20s and 30s. They're going to run the world for the next 30 years. And that's why this pet phase isn't anywhere near or over or complete, because they're not done having pets uh, in their lives. And, and, and their demand for pets is going to be one of the pressure points that we we witness and, and try to come up with solutions for
2: you were talking about the pet economy in your book, Pet Nation. Uh, it's $90.5 billion from 1998 to 2018. So when we think about uh, the uh, jobs, obviously, uh, in the pet economy, but in terms of pet owners and the cost to have a pet, can you talk about um, you know some yeah. of those factors?
3: Sure can. And I, and I, I need to update those numbers. Okay. Uh, now the pet economy is is exceeds $110 billion in wow. the U.S., and Morgan Stanley the big investment bank projects it in just eight years to get to nearly 300 billion. So it's, it's a scale we never could have imagined. But uh, you can, you can have a dog or cat and enjoy them at an income level uh, that could is in the, you know, 20 to 40 mil, excuse me, 20 to $40,000 a year range. I mean, there's ways to do that, but you can spend a tremendous amount of money if you want to on, on everything. And, and it's, it's what's driven this economic growth, um, including things like designer food with all the nutritional qualities and distinctions you want in your own diet. For sure, pet clothing, uh, as you say, it's not just getting out last year's Halloween costume for your dog, but buying a new one. And that, that, that's a trend that I found quite interesting. Um, and the training, the daycare, the boarding, You know, all of those factors. Um the treats, you know, dog treats just like this treats or supplements people like. Uh there's there's almost no end to the imagination going into what what your dog or cat would enjoy. And if they would enjoy it, you might as well buy it. Um the funny thing there, I I, I end my book with a with a spat, if you will, with Pope Francis I First and my late mother, Irish Catholic to her last day who loved this Pope was never forgave me for this, but the truth is the Pope has lectured and done interviews and given sermons criticizing the culture of pets, that people spend money on pets and that he has a zero sum theory, which I, I think is absurd that if you love your pet too much, you won't have anything left for the people in your life. And, and A, there's no evidence of that. B. I think it does just the opposite. I think pets bring out the best in people. And I, I, for the life of me, can't understand why a pope who chose St. Francis of Assisi, (laughs) the patron saint of animals, as his namesake, uh, didn't get the memo about animals. <laughs> well,
2: I'm Although, glad I'm glad you called him out, uh, Mark Cushied, <laughs> author of Pet Nation: The Inside Story of How Companion Animals Are Transforming Our Homes, Culture, and Economy. We'd love to hear from you about the pets that rule your home, or maybe your office. Howard's calling in from Deep River. Howard, go ahead. Oh,
1: uh, good morning. Um, I am a dentist, and I have had dogs in my office for decades. Um. The bottom line is if I wasn't there, patients would not care. But if the dog isn't there, they get very upset. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My dog is incredible. She meets patients at the door as they come in. She will sit with them in the reception area, follow them into the operatory, nuzzle them until we're getting ready, and then she will lay down kind of close to them, and stay there the entire time we're working on them. The patients love the dog.
2: Well, I bet that helps with some of your patients' anxiety going to the dentist, Howard.
1: Extremely, Uh, it's incredible. I would make one comment regarding that. I wanted to make my dog an official therapy dog, but the rules for therapy dogs are so strict that uh, I didn't think we could follow them and I didn't want to cheat. They inquire, it requires disinfecting everything on them, and it requires bathing them each time they come from a situation. Too much.
2: Right. Well, thank you, Howard, uh, for calling in, and I love to hear that your your practice uh, has your dog there to to help your patients. Uh, Mark Cushing, can you respond to what Howard shared about you know therapy dogs and maybe some of the limitations of if you wanted to have your dog designated?
3: No, he's 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 spot on, and it's. Uh, um, I wasn't using "spot" the dog name uh, as a pun, but I guess it wasn't wasn't a bad one. Uh, now that I hear myself, I'm kidding, but uh, uh, he's he's absolutely right, um, and I, I think the bar's too high. I, it, it, part of the problem has been, as everyone knows, there's controversy about an emotional support animal, which is a much lower level of classification, and people sought that classification for their pet in one case an ostrich um in one case in pennsylvania an alligator Um, because they wanted to get their pets on an airplane and airplanes have come down firmly saying no you have to you you have to be a legitimate service dog Uh, and that's even different than a therapy dog i think the standards are too high and i mean hearing uh, the doctor's account of dogs in his dental clinic Uh, which is a brilliant idea, and uh, I would have appreciated that uh, many times in my childhood uh, if if I'd had a dog near near me, um, that we shouldn't raise the bar that high, but there's still some skepticism and and some overly protective thinking about the dogs. They benefit from the human-animal bond as much as people do, and that's been tested, so the oxytocin and cortisol exchange occurs in in pets at the same time it's occurring in people and i think we could be more forgiving and lower the bar just hearing the doctor's example you wonder you know why why would that why would those requirements be insisted upon but um i don't see them changing right now that's that's a pretty tight-knit world that controls those standards i haven't had a lot of experience with them in my full-time practice involving pets but I do know it's it's not easy to make changes. But uh, I'm inspired now to to think about it more and see if we can't do something about it.
2: You know, when I was reading your book, Pet Nation, you talk about how even though uh, there are more places in America that have become more welcoming, there's still places that um, are frowned upon if you bring a pet in because of uh, public health, and that includes restaurants. And so maybe part of the what Howard was sharing this idea that you know pets are dirty and we don't want them in certain places.
3: Well, it's funny, the French, uh, people always say the French treat dogs in restaurants much better than they treat children. And you go to a park in Paris with your child and you're sort of ushered away quickly, uh, no kids allowed. Uh, and, and I've always thought that was just interesting about French culture. But they, you know, in France, it's not uncommon at all to go inside of a restaurant and see a dog uh, at the feet of the customers. And in the U.S., public health codes frown on that outside on terraces, sidewalks, that's fine. Um, I'm sure this issue will be pushed and pushed because what's happened in every corner of the country is people just bring their dogs and over time uh, they're tolerated in places they weren't before. Um, And I, I think there'll be certain areas like the kitchen of a restaurant. That would be a health code violation and probably should be. Um, it wouldn't be at risk all the time, but you could imagine scenarios that wouldn't be healthy. Um, that's one of the places that is likely not to change, but there won't be many more. I, I, I kid about the fact that no pets allowed signs may become like historical curiosities, you know, in museums as we, as we remember those times, but, but the areas are shrinking where you can't take, certainly a dog, uh, other pets can be challenging, but uh, certainly a dog.
2: Joining us on where we live now on Zoom is Dr. Kip Brinton, owner of Country Companion Veterinary Services in Bethany. She's president of Connecticut Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Brinton, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for
0: having me on this morning.
2: Uh, Mark Cushing has has written a really interesting book, Pet Nation, about uh, the surge in pets and our bonds with them. I'm wondering if you could talk about what you've seen in your practice, especially during the pandemic. We know so many people have adopted, whether it's a new animal or an additional animal, and that can uh, create uh, quite an issue when you need to get veterinary care. What have you seen?
0: It definitely is. You know, I think we're finding that we're sufficient than we were before being curbside and that's created part of the backlog in addition to people adopting new pets uh, trying to get in existing clients people that have not had dogs before now are looking for veterinarian so you know it's putting a definitely put a large burden on the entire veterinary population
2: i know then you are joining on zoom and you've shared on facebook you have a pandemic pet can you tell us about (gasps) him or her (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, we um we adopted Magnolia. Um, she was a, a pandemic puppy. Her litter was almost euthanized because they were born right at the beginning of COVID in this rescue group that was taking on, didn't know how things were gonna go. So, you know, we're truly blessed to have been able to get her. But she was a project, you know, she we were looking, thinking about a second dog, and um we adopted her and she's been fantastic. My daughter is 13. She's done 95% of her training and it's been a, a great thing a great outlet for my daughter it's been great for the puppy who's now you know 18 months and you know we've had our share of dealing with separation anxiety and the issues that come with these pandemic puppies
2: I'm glad you brought up that point because that's something that is related to what we talked about earlier, where more uh, workers in this country feel like, you know, maybe my employer can be a little more uh, welcoming to my pet because we don't want to be leaving them at home when they have been used to us for so long, Dr. Brinton.
0: Right. And we've kind of counseled people from the beginning. There's a couple of things we've done, you know, definitely counseling people from the beginning. Take a walk without your dog. Go get coffee. You know, go out for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, increase your time gradually so that these dogs are are adapted to being left home by themselves. Uh, We also brought in a trainer um, who is fantastic to do some puppy classes at our office with just a couple people at a time so that these dogs were not left unsocialized and the owners were not left without any guidance as far as training. So, you know, we've had to adapt that way as well. Mm.
2: Getting back to uh, the surge in in uh, pet services that are needed and, you know, dealing with uh, trying to juggle many more appointments because uh, we hear, and uh, I know um, uh, Mark Cushing has written about you know, th- how many people have adopted pets in the pandemic. So what are some solutions, Dr. Brinton, um, some workarounds? Uh, you know, my understanding is that there are not that many veterinarian programs in this country. And so in terms of, you know, making sure that this workforce is robust as mark says the number of pets will just keep growing right
0: the number of of pets is growing you know it depends on who the avma has cited some statistics that show that the number of pets adopted last year did not increase and i'm not Hmm. sure i don't entirely agree with that because i mean we're definitely seeing an increase in what's been adopted and the number of visits that we've seen you know our, our patient visits from last year this year increased um, over hundred just in the past month and looking at September of last year to this year. Um, there are a limited number of veterinary colleges in the United States. There are, are foreign schools um, such as Ross that have programs as well and they're, they've increased their class sizes and are turning out more veterinarians but we've also seen an increase in the veterinarians who are retiring, hitting the retirement age. So you know looking for that to balance out to see where all of this lands,
2: Mark well, I wanted to hear from you. You know, you talk about you know trying to get a handle of how many pets there are in this country, but also you know where pets are coming from. You say that there is a shortage.
3: There is, and and, and to echo the doctor's comments uh, about the number of vet schools. I do a lot of work in the accreditation area with schools. From 1978 to 2014, that 36-year stretch. United States opened one new veterinary college. So there is a shortage of colleges and, and we weren't prepared for the surge and it's nobody's fault. You, you don't look into the future every day and get a clear view of it. But we, we need more veterinarians um, and we need, in my view, mid-level professionals too, like human healthcare has. But, but for the dog issue, I was involved in a study that the Mississippi State University Vet School was part of in 2015. And, and it turned out that we could be uh, short of as many as two plus million dogs a year, but the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, came out in 2019 and said about half of that deficit is made up from foreign dogs. And what's interesting is they they advise people that fewer than 3% of the dogs coming in from other countries have any medical or veterinary or vaccine records. And frankly, they come from some pretty rough neighborhoods. I don't say that to be critical, but we don't have any sense of the humane breeding or animal welfare standards being practiced, if at all, in some of these countries. And they're not walking through the front door of customs, just so people know that. And then I've had people say, well, how do they get in? And I, my answer is pretty simple. How do you think drugs get in this country? They're not brought through TSA um, uh portals they get in you know there's a lot of landing strips that that uh you can get in and out and so we have a we have this culture now and it may be the solution but but it's a strange solution for this country to choose to say we'd rather have foreign bred dogs that we know nothing about than have commercial breeding in this country which has earned this term puppy mills in many cases they deserve that term because they're, they're not humane but there are breeders that do a good job but the whole sort of career the whole idea of breeding is not not a popular one in this country but as the doctor knows better than me you know it takes two dogs to make a puppy and you know at some point you have a shortage and and shortage is usually revealed two ways do shelters by by noon on friday have any dogs available for adoption um and what's the price of a dog and both adoption costs and the price of of a purebred dog in this country have spiked dramatically. And the only explanation for that is shortage. Um, and you and you have this interesting dynamic that's been very fruitful. It's, it's a good thing. I call it the canine freedom train. And many Northern shelters across the country from East to West have dogs from the deep South or from the Southwest. You know, they're not strays and, you know, it's not, in Portland, Oregon, they don't have stray dogs at Oregon Humane Society, which is a wonderful humane society, but they're dogs that come up from Bakersfield in Los Angeles, California, and it saves the dog's lives. You know, they were they were likely going to be euthanized due to just lack of space. And across the Northeast, you know, from Alabama, from East Tennessee, from Mississippi, you have dogs that come up to shelters, but, um, but even those numbers are are shrinking. So it is a challenge. Uh, we don't, and I know that the, the doctor has to feel this way too. We don't wanna see dogs become a luxury item. And right now a golden doodle puppy, a very popular breed that doesn't shed. If you hear a breed that has oodle at the end, it's it's got some poodle in it and it's usually put together and, and people love those dogs because they don't uh, shed. But guess what? The, the average price in the west, you know, west of the Mississippi is $4,500 right now for a golden <laughs> doodle puppy. That's a, that's a price tag. That's a luxury item.
2: Wow. I mean, well, I want to continue talking with both of you right after a short break. This is where we live. You're hearing Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, and Dr. Kim Brinton's here. She's a veterinarian for Country Companion Veterinary Services, also president of Connecticut Veterinary Medical Association. And we'll be with you in just a short couple of minutes. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We're talking about the radical changes America has undergone. Because of pets, it's the focus of the book Pet Nation. Author Mark Cushing is with us. Also with us is Dr. Brinton, uh, Dr. Kim Brinton, owner of Country Companion Veterinary Services. Uh, Dr. Brinton, I wanted you to respond to what Mark shared before the break. Uh, Let's talk about the dog shortage and the idea that you you don't want a pet to become a luxury item, but gosh, a gold. And doodle for forty five hundred dollars. That's a lot,
0: right? And that's Mark. That's higher than what we're seeing here. You know, I would say the average here is probably around twenty five hundred. Um, not sure what the difference, you know, in in areas of the country is, but we're. I mean, I think we're seeing that people are able to find. There may they may be waiting from a breeder. Um, they may be, you know, unfortunately supporting puppy mills um, in able to adopt to get a dog you know whether they're you know, purchasing through a rescuer or a pet store or a breeder um but yeah I agree that you know there's there is definitely some shortage you know people having to wait
2: when we think about uh, the shortage you know mark talking about uh, you know the the caravans that come up from the south, because they're all the people that want to adopt dogs in the northeast. I mean, I'm thinking back to all the dogs we've had in the last two decades. We're talking in Florida, Arkansas, and the two currently in my house, one's from Texas, the other one's from Alabama. And the idea that when you adopt through one of these rescue organizations, they are spayed or neutered or will soon be. Is this the same approach that we should still be using when we think about the shortage of pets? Dr. Brenton, I'm curious your thoughts.
0: For for a couple of reasons, you know, I do understand their, the point of their spaying and neutering before they're before they're adopted. For from a health standpoint, I do wish they'd wait. in some particular breeds, um, and our puppy actually came from Georgia, so she was a, you know a southern puppy as well. And having practiced in the deep south, I do understand why there is a quote freedom trail," as Mark's saying for for dogs from the south. I, you know, I, I've even gone to rescues and said, look, this puppy, can you, you know, we'll certify that we will spay this dog. Can you please wait for health reasons, problems that we see like urinary incontinence in female dogs if they're spayed to young particular breeds?
2: Mark Cushing and Dr. Brinton, for most of this show, we focused on cats and dogs. But there are a lot of people who have what would be considered non-traditional pets. Uh, Mark, in your book you cite that Connecticut the most popular non-traditional pet is a hedgehog <laughs> talk talk about through that
3: <laughs> it, it's uh, I I didn't do it you know with a smile on my face but I, I I knew that other pets needed attention so chapter eight of my book to some extent lists the, the most popular pet non-traditional pet in every state and I was impressed to see the hedgehog in more than one state Uh be the leader, uh, though in California, uh, hedgehogs aren't allowed, um, if, allegedly for public health reasons. So I say allegedly because I'm not going to get in the debate about whether that made sense or not. But uh, you saw the same growth percentage wise with non traditional pets as with cats and dogs. And guess what? All the evidence says that the human animal bond is at work with non traditional pets including the, the most powerful story I shared was from a, a, a Key West exotic animal. He's also a specialist, a veterinarian, a tremendous veterinarian, who once saved the life of a 19-foot particular python whose owner drove from Texas to Los Angeles on Christmas Day to get help. I mean, it's quite a story. But his home was uh, destroyed in one of the hurricanes three or four years ago in the Key West, and he came back. He could not save his fish, right? And 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 Dr. Brenton would know that. I mean, there was no way in in your truck trying to leave as a hurricane approached, they couldn't get that whole apparatus together. And he knew that. And he came back and he's and he just talked and just weeping, because he said every day when he came home, he'd have eye contact directly with the fish in his aquarium. And, and he he could tell that they knew him and he knew them. Uh, no different, uh, I mean, in some manner different, but really no different than we are with our cats or dogs. And I think if people don't appreciate that and wonder why would someone have this uh, bearded dragon or this pet, uh, I'm sure Dr. Brenton could explain. You can engage and have a relationship that's meaningful, the same as you would with a cat or dog. Uh, Dr. Well, Mark, I'm, go ahead, I'm Dr. sorry. President.
2: Go ahead. Absolutely.
3: I have to say 100%.
0: We see I mean, we're mixed practice. So we see a little bit of everything other than horses. And we see a number of people. We have pigs in our office every day that are, you know, house pigs, people's pets that sleep in their beds. So definitely there's, there are alternative pets. You know, we have a, a pig who's a patient who has her own Instagram following, a number of them actually, and chickens, goats. So definitely agree on the, the alternative pets and the, the bond that people can have with them. You know, we've, we had a client who was a, a Parkinson's patient and her pig was her, you know, was her 100% companion besides her husband. But um, the bond that she had that with that pig was was just amazing.
2: Uh, before we run out of time, we've just got about three minutes. Uh, Tony in Manchester, I'm just going to paraphrase your question, wants to know if uh, tech schools can help with the shortage we're seeing at vet clinics. Dr. Brinton?
0: There are technician schools, um, Within the state of Connecticut, there are less now. I think there's, I think there are two accredited programs right now. It would be nice to have more programs that would turn out support staff. Would be a great help to us. Um, some have actually stopped their programs for various reasons. Quinnipiac used to have a four year program, and that's gone. So tech schools, yes, would definitely help.
2: Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, uh, you know, I am curious. In your book, you uh, promote. Uh, some ideas, some policies to help encourage pet ownership. If we know, you know, science backs it up. Studies show that uh, pets and humans, it's good for us to own a pet. Can you talk briefly about maybe one of these policies to encourage pet ownership?
3: The greatest challenge we face is uh, low-income access to pets uh, as well as to veterinary care. And on the, on the ownership side, too many apartments, particularly publicly financed to Apartments where laws say they must be pet friendly, aren't operated as pet friendly apartments. And the evidence is that people rent longer, they'll pay more um, and they will be great tenants, but there's this myth that somehow, you know pets are gonna destroy an apartment. You'll see new apartments, I'm sure in Hartford and Boston, Providence, Stanford, anything built in the last five years, I- I'll almost wager with anybody that they're probably pet friendly because developers have learned that millennials insist on that and it's not a battle you're gonna win. But too many public low-income housing projects in this country, and I've studied this and my research team has looked into it, are not pet friendly. That's the greatest barrier, trust me, to pet ownership is if you're told you can't have this apartment and you don't have any other choice financially. Um, And we need the industry needs to spend much more time addressing it. And I've had conversation with the people that run public housing in a particular city, I'll leave it anonymous, And it just wasn't a priority she said it's not a priority of ours and i said well you know how much time do you have for the evidence of what a good thing a dog or a cat can be for a person and why would you think a low-income person couldn't even use that Mm. help or that amenity or enjoy it more um, with fewer choices and it's frustrating but you know i think over time we'll make progress there but that's the greatest barrier and we need to resolve. And Mark
2: Cushing, that's a great point to end on. We thank you for your time. What a great book. Uh, author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. Also, thanks to Connecticut's Dr. Kim Brinton. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible, Katie Pellico on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalbathanschel. Have a great weekend.